Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Years in Americans, episode 131 with Mishasha Suzuki Graham, uh, one half of the magnificent duo behind Dear White Woman. Uh, you heard from her friend and partner, uh, Sarah, last week as we unpacked her story of growing up uh, multiracial, biracial, Japanese, and American uh, here in the States and her journey into becoming an, uh, an educator, uh, sharing their insights and their uh, philosophies, talking to uh, white women and beyond about what it means to be uh, anti-racist and talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, today, we get to hear from the other half, uh, Misasha, uh, who is a litigator by trade. Uh, she is the parent, a mother of two multiracial uh, children, and um, very excited to share this conversation uh, with you all. If you have not yet uh, checked out their book, their podcast, their Instagram page, it can all be found at Dear White Woman, Dear White Woman podcast, or just head over to uh, dearwhitewoman.com. And so excited to share this with you. I hope you're staying safe and healthy. Uh, We are going to give you two episodes this week uh, with my friend uh, Suraj uh, coming later in the week. And so again, thank you so much for tuning in. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and I am so excited to now share with you my conversation with Misasha. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. Uh, we are excited to have you here. And if it's uh, your first time joining us, welcome. We're talking today to one of my favorite people that I've met during the pandemic and just sort of discovering friends, now friends, who do similar work uh, from similar perspectives, both as Asian Americans, but also as parents in our perhaps difficult and challenging and exciting endeavor to raise better kids and to put them into a better world. And so today I am speaking to uh, Mishasha Suzuki Graham, who is one half of the wonderful duo that makes up the Dear White Women team. At this point, I don't know whose interview will go first. And so you might have heard Sarah's episode already, or this is the first one. But we are excited to learn more about Mishasha and her own personal journey through life. You know, I love the fact that both of you guys have mother as the first word in your LinkedIn bio, which I think is super cool. But you've, you've done a lot. You, you've been a lawyer. She's done some other work. And now we know we know her as one of the co-hosts, co-authors of Dear White Woman. And, and just in general, somebody who is uh, using her experiences, her privilege and her voice to make a better world for our kids. So, Mishasha, welcome to The Asian Americans. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. I, I am so excited. So we're, we're talking in the middle of September. In less than a month, uh, you will officially be an author. I forgot to ask Sarah this, but how, how are you feeling about that? It's a big deal. It's really strange. Like I, I was explaining to someone that I have this book coming out. And they're like, oh, I didn't know you were an author. I'm like, what? No, I'm not an author. So um, I've clearly got to work on that. But yeah, we wrote the book at the end of 2020, sort of between the election. Um, and we wrote the foreword or sort of the introduction right at the time of the Capitol insurrection. So it was a period where a lot was going on. And I wouldn't necessarily say writing a book in you know six weeks or however long it was is a preferred style of writing, but it worked for us. Um, so yeah, it's, it's still sinking in. I, I think it's a huge deal. I'm still at that stage of writing my book proposal with my book agent and just sort of knowing how laborious and just wild that process is. For, for y'all to have done it in a pandemic with kids and, and with life going on. But also, I, I think at the perfect time where 
perhaps I, I will use the word yet instead of ever, we are in the most ready state as a society, I think, particularly with your audience, to have these conversations and then hopefully that openness grows and grows and grows. But yeah, let, let's, you know, we, we do, we know a little bit about, and we will learn more as we converse today about the work that you do and the work that you want your legacy to be defined by. But let's roll it all the way back. Tell us about the Mishasha origin story. Where did you grow up? How, how did the earlier parts of your life, how was it influenced by the Asian American identity? And, and tell us all about your early years. Yeah. So the origin story, um, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, so I am a lifelong Dodgers fan. Yes. Just saying that since we're recording. In we're we're, we're in good, good company. Here. Yeah. Um, Giants I, fans, please don't turn it off. I live in the Bay area. So I under, it's a sort of a daily conversation up here. Um, <laughs> why I have all the Dodgers gear, but so I grew up in Los Angeles. I was the oldest or I am the oldest um, child and only daughter of a Jap to a Japanese immigrant father and a white mother. And that was always a big part of my life because we grew up in a household um, in an area where there were very few biracial kids, um, very few sort of mixed race couples. Um, but it had a, a there was a heavy Asian influence. And I grew up um, doing sort of all the things that good Asian kids do um, and spent my Saturdays in ballet instead of Japanese school, which was the one thing I think my, you know, relatives were really sad about, but made it up by spending every Saturday after that in little Tokyo, um, going to all of the stores there, going food shopping and, um, yeah, culturally, we grew up in a very Japanese household, although I knew what it was to be sort of American by going to a school um, and, yeah, interacting with all sorts of people. How did that shape your view of the world? I mean, L.A. is an interesting place, being Japanese-American or Asian-American in L.A., um, for folks who are not as familiar, were in at large in a very macro scale, a very diverse area. But if you are familiar with LA, you know that different ethnic groups are, um, or not actually segregated, but people live in different parts of town. And um, that really affects how you view yourself. Um, like I grew up in Fullerton, which is probably the most Korean place outside of Korea. And so that shaped my identity quite a bit. And then I moved to New York City, which is a whole different story. But you know, I guess you, you talked about uh, there, are, there are more mixed-race couples now, and you are in a mixed-race marriage today, but even back then, did you know of any other folks whose father was Asian? And, and I guess, how did your parents meet? Because I don't think I ever asked. Oh my gosh, it's so cheesy. They, um, they met at summer school, um, and like at that summer school, they had um, dances, right? Because it was like in the 60s, late 60s. And so they would pair you up. So they'd march in like they put a line of guys and a line of um, women. And so you would sort of march in with a pair so that you could turn to the person who you were across from and immediately start dancing with them. Um, and my dad and my mom were one off in that line. And I guess my dad saw my mom and was like, oh, I'll ask her to dance um, later. And so my dad's six two for reference. So he's like super tall in an era where you it was stereotypically not an Asian trait, right? And so 
Um, so their first date was on the moon landing, like, see, this is super cheesy. Um, and so, and then, um, in 1969, and then they got married, um, four years later. Um, but I mean, realistically, you know, had they met five years prior, they couldn't have gotten married. So, um, so that was always something that my mom sort of drilled into my head, like the importance of not only knowing who you are, but knowing the, the civil rights history of our country. So that was a big, a big thing. But yeah, super cheesy story. My dad came to the US when he was in high school, um, knowing like zero English, basically. So, um, so yeah, he, he's, he sort of created his own journey here. That's a very unique Japanese American story too, because I think for many of our friends and and folks who, at least from California, their their parents and their grandparents uh, were here through the war, and that obviously shapes not just their own experience but the ex- experience as as a community as a whole. That that is you, you say cheesy, but that's awesome. Um, that's really, <laughs> you didn't really get cool. that story told to you like a million times, and my brother and I would just roll our <laughs> eyes like, all right, again. So, what did you want to be? based on that influence in your household, you know, what were girls at your age in your sort of in your community aspired to be? Well, first I wanted to be a ballet dancer because that was, you know, what I, what I did and what I loved doing. Um, then I wanted to be president because I was like, all right, I have some ideas about this country. Um, and my mom was all for it. She's like, great. We've never had a woman president. And like they left out the whole like we've never had like an Asian president. We've never had a biracial female president. She just like went with women, woman. I was like, perfect. I'm going to be that. Um, and then as I got a little older, I was like, wait, um, there's some downsides to that to that dream. Um, but yeah, that's originally like what I wanted to be. And my parents were all for it. Not, and which is interesting because my dad is, you know, not a U.S. citizen. Um, and he very much identified, you know, you were talking earlier about the Japanese American history, right. In, in California. And my dad was very clear that he was Japanese. Like he was not Japanese American because that history is so different. Um, and so we were, we were raised, um, Japanese, right. Um, not outside of the Japanese American history. Cause I spent a lot of summers in Tokyo. So it was always interesting later on when people would challenge me, just how Asian are you? Right. Which is a, is a sort of a common, um, challenge when you're biracial. Um, you know, you prove how much you are of, you know, whatever parent you, you know, you, you take after or, or not. And, uh, and that was sort of a constant thing. And I was always so mystified by it. I was like, I, all my dad's family's in Japan. Like I'm clearly Asian and people would be like, eh, I don't know, maybe around the eyes. So, um, was that from Asian friends or non-Asian friends? Both actually. Like I remember walking into like an Asian American association meeting in college, like freshman year um, and walking in and people were like, why are you here? Basically. I was like, yo people, like, I, I don't know. My name is Misasha Suzuki. Like I am actually a dual citizen. Um, I was a Japanese citizen at the time. I was like, you know, I, I spend my summers in Tokyo, like I grew up culturally Japanese, but it wasn't necessarily enough because I didn't look like how people thought I should look. And I, um, and I, I got that. I mean, too, because, you know, I, depending on the day and the group and whatever, people might not assume that I am Asian. Um, but yeah, it was like sort of a constant thing. Um, 
And so after, that's why, you know, I met Sarah in this group made up of hoppas, like biracial people, basically, because it was so freeing to be in a group where I didn't have to constantly be like, yes, I'm Asian and white, or like, how white am I? How Asian am I? I could just be. There, there's so much I want to talk about in what you just <laughs> shared, but where where I want to go is this sort of this community that you found. You met Sarah uh, during your first semester at Harvard, where, where I presume you didn't go to study ballet dancing, but you, you found community in, in like people and i think you know we're we're finding it now you know particularly within that sort of influence of of our parents um and, and i generalize i know i'm generalizing but sort of this academic excellence right like if if you study hard enough and you get into the right schools and you get the right job like that's all that matters a lot of it to be honest i think is rooted in more the homogeneity of where our parents come from so gender obviously a total mess in Asian countries, but at least there was no racial context. So if you did go to XYZ school, that's actually what it took to uh, set your family up uh, financially okay. H- how was that experience? How did you end up at Harvard from sort of a goal perspective? What did you want to be? And and how did that fateful meeting change sort of what you wanted to do during your four years there? Oh, great question. So um, I'll back up a little. I had back surgery when I was 16, right? Which sort of ended my like ballet dreams, um, which were at that point, I had moved on to like 25 other careers that I wanted to do. Um, and then I was doing jazz dance, like jazz and hip hop. And I remember the teacher had asked my mom to come and she was like, you know, your daughter can maybe do this. Like, does she want to do this professionally? And my mom was just like, who I always joke is the most Asian white woman that you'll ever meet was like, absolutely not. Like she's going to college. We're just going to shut this down right now. So that was the one and only discussion um, that happened in which there was no, in which there was a trajectory for me other than college. And then for college, I was um, determined to leave LA. Like I, at that point, I didn't really care where I just felt like I had to get out of LA and see more because I'd gone to a very small school and was just ready for something new. And I remember um, a bunch of friends were going to Stanford because I went to a small like prep school, basically. So um, and I was like, Stanford sounds good. I think I think I'm going to go to Stanford. And my mom, again, sort of like latched onto that. I was like, whoa, girlfriend, like um, what about Harvard? Like Harvard, Harvard sounds better. Um, and it was a decision that I made in the end because I was like, yeah, Harvard is even farther from Los Angeles. Um, and when I went to visit the campus, because um, I was lucky enough to get to go visit the schools, um, it was so international. And that was what I really resonated with me because I was like, I understand this. I understand being between cultures and having multiple cultures. And so I, I'm going to go there. So I went there. Um, Sarah and I met when she was in her first semester, when I was in my third semester. So I was a sophomore. She was a freshman. Um, and I was trying to do the major that Harvard doesn't have, which they don't have an international relations major. So I kind of had to make my own. Um, and I think meeting Sarah meant that I found someone who is like, she is my best friend, but she's also more like my sister. Like we understood each other. And I, I understood then that there were people out there who were like me, who had these experiences similar to me that I had never known about. I thought that this was sort of a unique experience, right? That 
And I, I was just used to not fitting in and sort of creating my own community. You know, you were talking about community. Um, and suddenly I was like, wait, I could have, there are other people who are doing this exact same thing and we can all have this community. And then wouldn't it be great if we could make our community bigger, if we could expand the definition of what it means to be Asian or what it means to be biracial or multiracial. Um, and so I think that's the question that we've continued trying to answer, you know, um, after walking out of that first conversation where the woman asked us, are you half or are you double a person? Because, you know, you're, you're both Asian and white. And we were like, all right, that's the wrong question. We're gone. Um, so yeah, we, that definitely changed the trajectory of my, of my experience there. The the whole notion of identity, particularly for our mixed race friends and I think demographically there are, are there is continued increase and, and will continue to be an increase of mixed race Asian families and children. But is this notion too? Because when you know I hadn't heard the word Hapa until I got to college too, and it was mainly you know kids from Hawaii. Obviously, there's a lot of a longer Asian American history there with more mixed race families, and I, I agree. You know, there was this sort of unfortunate, and then we weren't raised with the same sort of nuanced conversation preparation as we hope we're doing with our kids and, and whatnot, but this sort of, are they Asian enough? Right. Like, cause we keep using the word half or a quarter, you know, like as if, you know what I mean? Like, okay, I've, I've used my Asian credits for the day. So like, I gotta be whatever the heck I am. Right. Like I can't eat two Asian meals in a day. Like, and, and it's just so silly, but when you're, when you're in that environment in, in college or, you know, any other sort of, developmental part of your life. I, I wish I'm grateful that we're having these conversations now. I, I wish I unlearned a little bit quicker and, and experienced things a little bit differently. But how, how did that shape, you know, your, your, the, the way you wanted to do uh, academics in college, you majored in East Asian studies, and you ended up going to law school after how, how did that all fit in sort of balancing academic excellence as we all were, were taught to do and, and want to do, but also this sort of identity piece. You know, not every kid that goes to Harvard majors in social studies, East Asian studies, and, and does great at it, and then ends up going to law school. How, how was that? I'm confused. <laughs> um, okay, let me go back. So first of all, yeah, I have a double major in social studies and East Asian studies. And and for the record, everyone's like, I took social studies in seventh grade. I don't think that's a real major. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I've had to defend this on like every, you know, interview discussion. Everyone's like, what's social studies? I think I, the, what, isn't that called civics? Um, it wasn't. Like I said, it was trying, I was trying to create this international relations thing because I was thinking like at that point, I understood what it was like to to bridge cultures, right? And I was like, wouldn't this be great if I could bridge cultures for like the rest of my life? So my whole goal um, was to leave Harvard and live in Asia um, when I graduated. And I wrote my thesis um, because like a true overachiever, you know, I, I'm going to write this thesis. Um, and it was on the equal employment opportunity law in Japan, which had just, which was going to pass um, and, and it was all, and I interviewed all these people in Japan and basically they were like, yeah, we're not sure that this law is going to change anything. And then I moved to Japan and worked in finance for two years where I got to live out that whole story that, yeah, in fact, the law did not change anything for women. Um, as I would stand there and now I was being questioned on like just how Japanese I was, 
um, because people were like, your last name Suzuki. Did you marry a Japanese? I'm like, no, people like I'm 22, right? Like I know I'm, <laughs> I'm, I just, I, my dad's Japanese. And then they'll be like, oh, okay, well, so you're Japanese. So you understand and like fill in the blank when, and this is all happening in like very formal Japanese, you know, at this, at this time. And, and I'd go into meetings and I'd have Singaporean colleagues um, who didn't speak Japanese, but they were men. And so we'd be presenting something and everyone be directing their questions to, you know, my colleagues. And then I'd be answering. And that was just like this people's minds were blown. Like there were eyes, it was like a, the same reaction. It was like a five second reaction. Their eyes would get super big and they're like, I can't put together how she looks with what she's saying. Um, and so I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm good with this now. I, I don't need to to live anymore of my like finance dreams. And I was doing a rotation. I was a consultant for, for the bank. Um, and I was doing a rotation in legal. And basically there, it was during the JP Morgan Chase merger. And so I was playing sort of the go-between between the two legal departments who didn't particularly get along. And one was very Japanese, that was mine. And one was very Western. And so I was like relaying messages and we, and we were in the same building. So I'd ride the elevator down, relay a message, ride the elevator back up, relay a message. And I was like, this consulting thing is not what I want to do. I want to be the lawyers who are making these decisions. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to go to law school. Um, and I had taken the LSAT before I left Harvard just as like a backup plan. Um, and I, in, in the end, I needed that. Um, and then my mom was overjoyed because she had been like trying to get me to come back to the U.S. for, for two years. Um, and so her plan worked in the end. I came back. I, um, I went to Columbia because that was the most international program I could find as well. And like, what's more international than New York? And I moved there in August of 2001. So September 11th, 2001 was my first full day of law school. Um, so that given that we're just passing the 20 year anniversary mark was very formative. Were you okay? How did, were you in class? I mean, it was early. Yeah. How did you, I mean, to give folks context, um, different part of Manhattan, obviously a hundred, hundred plus blocks away, but how did you experience that? And were you, or was everybody in you okay that, during that time? Yeah, it was, um, I had gotten, so I lived right near Penn Station, actually. So I had ridden the subway up that morning and I was in the cafe getting like a bagel or something and they have the TV on always. And I saw the first plane hit the towers and I, I didn't, they were replaying it, right? Because they didn't know at the time. And I, I thought it was a small plane because there was had been a small plane that had like grazed the Empire State Building like a helicopter or something really small, um, not too long prior. Um, and so I was like, I don't know what's happening. I called my parents, which was really good because otherwise we lost cell service for that whole day. And I just said, I think a plane hit, hit the Twin Towers. Um, and then by the time I went to class, uh, the dean was actually teaching. It was towards class. Um, and the second the second plane hit the towers. And then he stopped class when um, the towers collapsed. And... I don't remember much of that day. I remember they told us we couldn't leave um, because no one knew what was going on, right? They didn't know if the city was under attack. Um, and I just remember being standing outside looking downtown. And I had been in LA um, during the Rodney King riots. And those, the sky 
and how dark that was in the middle of the day for the Rodney King riots, that is the same darkness that was downtown. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't really talk about that day a lot. I, I always text like a couple of friends who were with me on that day, um, on September 11th, but I, I can't imagine what that feels like for people who lost loved ones, um, that day. We're recording this on the 14th, so it's very fresh in our minds for, for many people uh, as we spent the last few days just thinking about all that's happened and how far we've come in, in some aspects, but also how much uh, we have to go in terms of unity and, and the race and sort of how yeah. we treat different types of people in this country. You ended up, after law school, going down the professional legal path for quite a while. You know, almost closer to, not quite, but almost 10 years. And I have, Sarah did, and you have, at some point said, not for me anymore. What was the impetus for that transition? And knowing what you do now, um, how much of the identity piece or how much of sort of the conviction to do something different, did, did that play a role at all? Or was it just got sick of the hours, didn't want to be a lawyer anymore, which I encourage actually. Um, if, if there's law school students or, or lawyers listening, um, tell us about that transition away from the legal profession. Yeah. So I graduated law school in 2004 and went like straight into big firm life. Um, I, I thought I wanted to do cross, well, in law school, I thought I wanted to do cross-border transactions, which is like what my dad does, like doing deals between the US and Japan. And then I realized I hate contracts. I hate like the concept of deals. I'm clearly not that detail oriented in that way. So and it and during that time period, they didn't need deal lawyers. They needed litigators. I was like, perfect. I like, you know, this research and writing component. Didn't really think out the arguing component that well, but I was like, fine, this will be fine. I'll be a litigator. Um, and I'll still try and do as much international work as I can, although there is no international litigation really, unless you're like with the UN or something. So I um I actually left law twice. Um, the first time I left because I was like, I don't think it's for me. And I think there's something else I should be doing. And I actually created the first, um, DEI position at, um, a law firm in Silicon Valley, um, which was not supposed to be a DEI position. It was supposed to be an associate retention position. I was like, yeah, I can tell you why you're losing associates. Um, but also <laughs> I think it's really important that we look at this piece. Um, and so I spent like, Oh, my entire time there trying to craft this, how do we support diverse attorneys? How do we get more diverse attorneys into the firm? How do we promote diverse attorneys? Um, and how, how, how do we want this firm to look and who, who, who is this firm? Um, and then I kind of got recruited back into law and, um, by the promise of doing sort of the international work. And I was like, you know what, I'll try it one more time. Um, but I was still trying to work the diversity piece and, and um, really working on representing all voices now back in, on the lawyer side. Um, so I stayed in law until my second son was one. And I think at that point, I'm also married to an attorney. So it was... Both of us weren't going to be attorneys unless we didn't want to see our kids um, at that level because we were both big firm senior associates sort of like at the partnership um, question. And it was 
we decided collectively, because I was like, I don't want to do it, um, that he was going to be partner um, or he was going to try and do that. And and he did. Um, and I am forever grateful that he, he was the one who did that um, because, and he'll be the first to tell you that I um, have so many interests that it's hard <laughs> to, like in law, you kind of got to be focused on doing law, being a lawyer, especially in the big firm world. Um, but I've been able to use my law degree to do things like election protection um, and a lot of pro bono work um, around voting rights. And um, to me, that's when I left um, even small firm life back in May of this year. Um, that is what I want to do, um, continue to use my law degree for. But I felt that there was other ways in which I needed to use my voice. Um, and so, and, and that was the podcast and the book and all of that. You took the words right out of my mouth. Using your voice for good, right? Based on your unique experiences of a variety of different identities of the mixed race and sort of seeing the world in a different lens and just living life and then realizing that perhaps we need to be the ones to have these conversations because people maybe don't expect Ivy League educated lawyers to have these because like we said, education and money is supposed to buy you out of these things, right? If you got the right degrees on the wall. If you got the right logos on your resume, if you live in the right neighborhood, maybe they won't be racist to you. Well, surprise, that's not true. And, and so you met Sarah in college and were there conversations from then until you actually decided to start something? And, and then tell us a little bit about sort of that spark, the creation process. Well, I guess I didn't ask Sarah either. Why the name, how the name, discomfort around the name, you know, tell us, because I think that's one of the most unique things about the brand is that it is endearing, yet also very direct. And people can assume what they want from a connotation perspective of what the message is. But tell us about sort of that, you know, the the origin story of, of the show and the brand. Yeah, so Sarah and I, you know, as best friends, and basically sisters do, we talk a lot. Um, and but we were also, we've also lived, we've never really been in the same place. The last time we were living in the same place was Tokyo. Um, so it's been a long time since we've been in the same place. But what has been similar about our experiences is we lived in places that are largely white. Um, I think probably she would probably agree at her more so than me. Um, but we moved in very white female circles um, in ways that, I think being biracial, you, I used to say it was like being the incognito Asian, right? Like people wouldn't necessarily assume um, that I was. And so I was privy to a lot of conversations that I think would have been different if there was, if they believed that a woman of color was there. Um, and so I, I think a lot of what we built the podcast on was we knew what conversations were happening in those circles and we knew what conversations were not happening very intimately. Um, and also as we got older, right, we became, we got married, we had kids. Um, we realized that our conversations changed a lot. Um, you know, and, and you, when you have kids, right, you think about like all your hopes for your kids, right. All your dreams, also all your fears and, one of my fears for my boys and my husband um, as well is that they'll walk out of our house one day and not come back because of the color of their skin. And that's like a fear that I can't make better for them 
um, in that I can't remove it. And I can't remove how they're going to be called the N-word. You know, I just hope that it'll be, they'll be old enough. You know, my, my husband was 10, so maybe they'll make it till 10 before they're called the N-word, right? Um, and, and will I, you know, what I can do is prepare them for that. But, you know, these are not conversations that white families are having, right? Um, because that those fears are different. And so we thought, what if we could bring these conversations? What if we could expand people's visions of what it means to be an American, right? Or what it means to live in this country when you see it through a different lens, one that you're not used to. Um, so that was really the impetus for the podcast. Like, how do we share people's stories, including our own? How do we talk about history and how we get from point A to point B? And how do we change behavior, right? How do we recognize our own influences in our own little spheres um, and change those behaviors? It might be small, right? It doesn't have to be a big thing. But even if you ask one person, like, you know, they say something, you're like, whoa, that's racist. You ask them, what did you mean by that? And just change, like, just that pause or that shift um, is small, but it could be really big. Um, and then to answer your question about why the title, um, you know, cause my mom who is a white woman asked me that same question. She's like, did you, did you have to call it dear white women? And we were like, yeah. Um, because going back to those circles that we moved in, you know, we know what the, we know how we feel like the conversation should go. And we also know the amount of like privilege white women have, right? Because you have, you have a lot. And sometimes I feel like white women don't recognize that. Right. But, but if we can help white women use their privilege to dismantle systemic racism, which is literally the tagline of our show, um, that's what we feel the, the podcast is really good at. Um, and that's, you know, the premise of the book as well in a slightly more nuanced way, but yeah, that's where it came from. And, and we've definitely gotten challenged on the title. Um, but I, I think that when people understand why, our why, um, they get it. When, when I met you and Sarah and, and began to learn about the show, and now would be a great time to plug the show and let you know that I was a guest on episode 115. Yes. For folks who want to go One back and listen. One of our favorites. Yes. Oh, stop. It, it, in a very interesting part, I, I think, of, of, of all of our lives, it was done in May during APAM when we were all reckoning with what the hell it meant to be Asian American, not just Asian American, but one who advocates for the community and for other people. I often sort of, you know, we, we sort of joked about like, you know, going to the right school and sort of buying your way out of racism, if you will. And the reason I started the Asian Americans after I became a dad, and it was just sort of not this sort of self-anointing process, but if not me, then whom? Not from like, I need it, like it has to be me, but it was also from this position of, if the person who had my life on paper doesn't use that privilege to advocate for people who don't, because we continue to use the excuse of, well, you went to business school, you went to law school, you all went to Harvard. And so do the things that Harvard allows you to do without thinking about why don't I just do what feels right and then do it in the best way because of my experience as a privilege. Like that, I don't think is a conversation that we have enough, uh, not just in our community, but in general. That somehow it's a head scratcher that when people meet you as the co-host, co-author, and sort of advocate in the social justice space, and people who generally have met me in the last year and a half 
have no idea what I used to do before. And they're like, wait a minute, you used to do that? Almost in sort of a backhanded compliment of like, that doesn't compute. And what was that moment for you? Obviously, becoming a parent has a lot to do with it. The world being as messed up in certain times has a lot to do with it. But what was that moment for you knowing that you wanted stepping away from the legal profession a couple of times, you know, but like, what was that spark in and what has kept that spark alive? You know, I, I think, um, I think you're absolutely right. When you become a parent, things change a little bit, like your worldview shifts because you have these like tiny people who you just want to protect. And, you know, when Sarah asked me, should we be writing this book right now? Cause it was, you know, a hot mess all of 2020. Um, and she was like, give me, tell me the why, like, I need to know the why. Um, and I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to save my kids. Like fundamentally, that is it. Like I'm trying to save my kids and kids who look like my kids and your kids too, right? Because it, this is a conversation that when we were growing up, if you think about like talking about race or you're shushed or you're told that we don't talk about that and we are, we are not going to be able to move the needle if we don't talk about it. And I think for being the mother of a, kid who's now my older son is turning nine next week and he's right at that cusp where he's always been the cute kid and now he's going to be the aggressive kid and I need everyone in his circles to be those upstanders for when he's going something is going to happen to him I need some other voices in there right and if I'm not using my voice to do everything I can to make sure that all of our kids are safe, then, then what's the point, I guess, is kind of what I feel like. All of these things, these, and I, I recognize that I'm so privileged to have gone to these great schools and had these opportunities, but I think that we, we, if we're looking at who we are as human beings, right, it, we, there is so much more. And so, why not? Why not me? Right? Like why? And it, and if, like what you were saying, it's never been for Sarah and me, it's never been about us. It has been about what can we change for, for the generations that come after us? Um, and how can we make it better? How do we make the conversations different? How do we get it so that like my kids and your kids are not feeling fear for their grandkids, right? Because they're out in society just being who they are. Um, I think that wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't, shouldn't we need everyone in this? So that's, that's, that's what got me there. We do need everybody in this, but I, I would love for you to explain it better. But your audience, your demographic is targeted specifically at white women who perhaps don't have shared experiences of uh, many of us. And, and I know you are raising uh, mixed race black children. So their experience is going to be extremely different, even as they too are Asian American. What was important about that distinction of using that part of your identity and your and, and Sarah's identity that could be, uh, there I say, white passing, or at least being not so judged or immediately excluded in those conversations to use that experience and to use that perspective to then say, okay, we know what type of conversations need to happen. And then more importantly, the nuance and the context of, we know perhaps better than somebody who is not of mixed race, you know, of white and Asian, that we know how to get 
the message better or, or more clearly? Was it as deliberate as you have uh, hindsight on today? Or and you've been doing this for two and a half years, so it's taking you know weekly for two and a half years, which is a feed in of itself. How, how has that been? And then has that changed at all in the last 12, 18 months as, as we've experienced some ugliness in the world? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I, um, you know, I, I do um, some work with racial justice and kids and parents. And I was doing this one workshop and there was a white mother who basically asked, you know, my kid's eight, so the same age as my kid, um, you know, but I feel like talking about white privilege or race or whatever, you know, is really traumatizing for them. Like, I don't want to make them feel bad. Um, so I don't think I should have these conversations at all. And like, it, it's comments, and this was, you know, in, in late 2020. Um, and the, it's comments like that, that make me realize, like, we have, we have a, this is work that we have to do right and and in particular this this group or you know non small group of white women because i think that's been the mindset for so long right i don't want to traumatize my kids and talk about this not for not by every white woman right but i get it right i get that you don't want to scare your kids but on the flip side like we are having those conversations in if you are a person of color um you know in our house raising black kids, we have those conversations daily because I need them to survive. And so I think that this is, it is privilege, right? That, that allows you to not have those conversations. And I think we need to be really honest about that. Um, and because we haven't done a lot of self-examining of that and privilege has become a bad word and I don't, or triggering word rather. And I think that there's some honesty and some introspection that needs to go on here. But in reality, like this is why everyone needs to do this. And this is the group that largely hasn't had to do this. So that's why in particular, I think we feel like because you haven't had to do this, you know, there's a lot of learning that has to happen. Um, and, you know, I learn all the time too. And I think that there's a lot of fear of making mistakes, right? You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to offend people. You, you don't know what to say, so you don't say anything at all. But I think that's the problem. Like we've gotten away with silence for so long and silence is not changing the status quo, right? Silence is not anti-racism. And so I think, you know, just getting past that fear, right? And I understand it because I fundamentally grew up believing that I should be perfect, right? That that was the goal, like perfection was really it. Like I needed to be the, to excel at so many things. Um, and so it's hard for me to make mistakes, but making mistakes is part of this work. And I think like, that's what we really talk about too, in a group of, of people who are not used to making mistakes or not, do not feel at all comfortable with that. Um, and I, and, and we'll still be uncomfortable, um, but we get better at it. Um, and, we, and we just need to keep doing it. I think it's really important. And, and I am grateful that you and Sarah are doing this work because I think even as and an East Asian straight man in this country, survival as the impetus for this work isn't always the number one reason. In amplifying our stories or the reasons why we do the things we do, you know, perhaps isn't life or death. It's not that 
I, I don't know. It, it's really, really sobering, I guess, to hear that because when they see you, they don't think that either, right? Because perhaps you have, but you know, it's just why even, why not just live your life white passing and, you know, just forget about what makes it ugly, right? Particularly as you have the academic and professional privilege that would have allowed you to just turn the other eye and saying like, okay, I'm just going to pretend not to be that. Uh, I, I could have, I guess, done that technically if I just stayed in my consulting job and collected the paycheck and not said anything that would have uh, warranted a friendly email from my manager or from HR and just sucked it in, right? Because um, you, you take the golden handcuffs and, and what comes with it. It, it actually reminds me of, um, in, in Michelle Bijan Kim's new book, Wake Up, she says the only reason she does the work that she does is because people are dying. And if that doesn't convince you to do something for somebody else, then that that's that's hard. But again, it needs to be with balance that especially those of us with privilege, or I guess varying degrees of privilege, we need to exercise our our, our voices to be able to advocate for other people. And and so, man, I, I'm grateful for the work that you all do. It is, I think, I hope it's a growing trend for, for two different reasons. One, I, I hope that more people do what you did is to step away from the profession to be able to do the work that you want to do. I also equally at the same time hope, and I am not hopeful, as hopeful about this second topic, but that organizations, whether they be our places of employment or academic institutions or just even our own families and communities, allow and encourage these types of conversations without the social and professional risk that so many of us face and financial risk really because these topics are quote-unquote unprofessional taboo or being political and so that's my hope and and i hope that the work that you and sarah do and continue to do through the book through the podcast and just living the lives that you guys do that you to do i hope it encourages other people um, because I think one thing that I've learned and, and you've learned and everybody else is there are so many good people that feel silenced because they don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't know if they are allowed to speak or allowed to speak up. And sometimes we need each other from our own communities that have the ability to speak from experiences or lived experiences to say, this is how we handle that conversation. I think as Asian Americans, we've gone through so much in the last year. And then my sincere hope is that we not only become more vocal in the support of our own communities and defending our own people, but also that we also understood that we can't do this alone. And that for some folks who may have not been as loud or vocal when other folks get oppressed and violence is uh, levied upon other people, that we have to give a crap too. And so as you know as, as cliche as it sounds we need all of us to do the work but we don't need all of us to do the same work and so if you're listening to this and you are not of mixed race and you don't resonate with the dear white woman audience and you're like well what do i care because there are people who will only listen to you you have family members you have people from your own communities who will only listen to you because you have credibility with them that i don't i say this a lot on the show i am a straight Korean cis, cisgender man who's educated, like 
pe- some people might look at me and go, who the hell are you to represent Asian America? And I get it. I'm not. I never said I do. But you know what? There are people that will listen to me because other Korean dudes may not have the same sort of resonance, right? So so if, if you're listening, I, I, I made three asks of our audience when we did Sarah's episode, and I'm asked the same three again. One, go back and listen to some of the Dear White Woman episodes, um, especially the ones that you don't think you are the prime audience for. Um, it is critically important that we expand our horizons because we care about the same things, but we need different perspectives on it. And if you cared what I have to say on the issue, again, go back to 115, buy the book. I forget number two. So three is buy the book because <laughs> it's not every day that we get Asian American women becoming authors to write about advocating for our community. We get one, Asian American authors are very, very few in general, but even the topical nature of the book, I'm talking about race and equity and justice and diversity and all the things that we care about is even more rare than that. And so, Let's support them. Uh, let's support the movement. And more than anything, let's encourage and inspire the next generation of authors, podcasters, thought leaders in this space, because there's never going to be a point where we're going to say we have too many. Unfortunately, I, I, you know, the world's not going to change overnight in, in a positive way. And so we need to continue to do the work. Dearwhitewoman.com is where you can find everything that you need to know about the podcast, the book, ways you can learn about their individual work and, and get in touch with them. Mishasha, thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, I, I know it's been a very busy time for you. Um, obviously, back to school. All the parents are are groaning. Books coming out. Uh, books should be out by the time you all listen to us. Got a lot of stuff going on. Um, help us close out the show in the way that we always do and, and say anything that you'd like, uh, short or sweet or long, to the Asian American community to um, you know wrap up the show and, and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans. <sighs> <laughs> First of all, thank you so much, Jerry. This has been such an honor. Um, I have my dear Asian Americans mug and my like I am Asian American sweatshirt that I rock on the Little League field, um, which I think people are like, what? So um, but in I couldn't agree more um with the fact that everyone has their own story, everyone has their own unique voice. And what has been so impactful for me, especially when we did a lot of um, personal discussions on the podcast about being Asian and female, was the number of Asian women who reached out and said, I heard you use your voice. And it made me feel like it was okay to use mine. And I, I want this community to know that your voice matters, right? It is really important. And I know that sometimes silence is easier. Um, but I really encourage you share, share your stories, share your voice, um, because your kids will hear you, your coworkers will hear, um, those other moms on the, the little league field will probably hear and, uh, we'll all be better for it. So thank you for this opportunity. This was wonderful. I want to point out something that you said, which I think is critically, critically important. When people get inspired by other people who tell their stories, it is rarely what they said that actually inspires. It's not even how they said it. It's simply the fact that they did. And so I think as, uh, and and we were talking a little bit before we started recording just over this, I, I think we're very similar in like everything gets us excited and everything seems like a great opportunity. 
And so we don't pick and we just sit and do nothing. Any action, and there's so many cliches and whatever you want to say about these things. My favorite is a step in any direction is better than standing still, right? And I think that's the takeaway that nobody can tell you. And if you're unsure about what you want to share, share your own personal experience because that is that is indefensible. And if somebody says crap to your own personal story, then screw them, right? Like, really. So, you know, start by sharing your own story and then whatever is comfortable to you. I, I know, and, and we're not saying that we're any, we, we just got a little bit uh, head start. You know, both of our shows are in the 130 episode count range. We've been doing this for a couple years. And, but every week, every time we record, it's humbling and frightening. And um, who's going to listen to this? And who the heck am I to share this story? And then so we go through it constantly. And so I, I, if you're listening to this, I would encourage you to make a plan to at least share something in a, in a format that is comfortable for you. For us, it's voice. Um, and, and for the, the woman, it's been writing a book. But whatever is comfortable to you, um, we, we hope that we've encouraged you at least to own your own story. Because again, there's going to be somebody who you, only you can reach. And even if it's just a few people, um, I think it's worth it. And so best of luck on the book launch. I, I would encourage people to, again, most of our audience isn't white woman, but lessons to be learned, books to gift to really elevate the conversation because these conversations about race, I know I just said that there's people who can only be reached by you, but that doesn't mean that all these things need to happen in silos. 99% of the things that we talk about content-wise is versatile. The context that actually makes it stick is it's what's unique. So uh, best of luck. Congratulations, first of all, on writing the book. Yeah, just... Blessings to you all and best of luck as you continue to change the world. And thank you for buying a mug. And we continue to, we we hope we continue our friendship into uh, helping raise a better world for all of our kids. Thanks, Patricia. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Um, I I really do think that there's um, a renewed or perhaps a new uh, spirit of uh, parents, myself included, who really want to do all that we can, leveraging our voices, our platforms, and our privileges uh, to create a world that uh, would be vastly different and better for our kids uh, on the backs and building up on the sacrifices of our parents and our grandparents' generation who did what they had to do in this country to survive and to give us these opportunities. Uh, we now are collectively bringing our voices together uh, to speak up and to speak up for other people. And so really, really glad uh, and really grateful for Sarah and Misasha who do the work that they do. Again, check out Dear White Woman, the podcast, the book, the Instagram, and wherever else you can find them. I'll put all the links in the show notes if you are unable to jot it down. Or just check out Dear White Woman podcast on Instagram and dearwhitewoman.com. So thanks for tuning in and excited to uh, sign off and, and to uh, look forward to our next episode, uh, 132. And so wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this, as we always do on the show, wishing you health, happiness, and uh, safety. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you for tuning into The Urged Americans. Be well.